0: Another sign of Jesus and uh, you'll see that uh, there are actually two, maybe even three miracles in this passage but altogether they form one sign and to understand what Jesus is communicating through this sign, we need to be familiar with uh, the story of the Exodus and particularly the final week that the Israelites spent in Egypt. On the day that would come to be known as the Passover, the Israelites were told to be ready to leave in haste, all their things packed. Uh, That night, they painted the blood of the lamb on their door frames and they ate the flesh of the lamb along with unleavened bread. It was unleavened with no yeast in it because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So Moses told them, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. At midnight that night the Lord did what he Promised, he passed through the land, every firstborn, except for the households that had the blood painted on their doors. These families were passed over, hence the name Passover. And so, just as they had to eat their meal in haste, so too they had to leave in haste. They couldn't wait until the morning. They departed while it was still night. So, Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead. So, the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now, Jewish tradition says that it took them seven days to go from where they were living in northern Egypt to the edge of the Red Sea, where they then face an impasse. The sea ahead of them and Pharaoh's army advancing on them from behind. And it was there that the Lord did his uh, final act of salvation through judgement, final in this stage of the story, of course. He parted the water, He brought Israel safely to the other side of the sea and he drowned the Egyptian armies. It's that time, particularly between Passover and the crossing of the sea, that is commemorated in the Jewish feast of unleavened bread. The Jews remove all yeast from their homes and after they celebrate Passover, they only eat unleavened bread for the next week. So, because of this close link between Passover and unleavened bread, remember last week we saw that, you know, they have Passover one day, the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When a Jew said, I'm going to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was implied that they included in that unleavened bread. You'd never celebrate one without celebrating the other. So, when John says in verse 4, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was at hand... He meant not just that one night of Passover, but the week-long feast that followed with the unleavened bread. Now, if Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover in chapter 5, then there's nearly a whole year between chapters 5 and chapter 6. So, we've jumped forward 12 months from last week. John's fast-tracking us, in a sense, through Jesus' public ministry, selecting these highlights along the way until in chapter 12 he'll bring us to Jesus' last Passover at which he'll be crucified. Nearly half of John and a big chunk of the other Gospels as well is focused on the last six days of Jesus' earthly life culminating in his death and resurrection. John's pushing us forward to get to that because he knows all of Jesus' teaching All of Jesus' ministry is pointing us forward to the cross. But this mention of the Passover isn't just giving us a timeline to follow. See how in verse 5 it says, lifting up his eyes then. This word then indicates that what Jesus does next is because Passover was coming soon. Passover and the seven days of unleavened bread That followed. They're a key to understanding what Jesus says and does. He's come to this place for a reason. He's not just taking a break, uh, nor at this point is he trying to uh, get away from the crowd that is following him. It's because they were following him that he came here. He's leading them to this place where he'll perform another sign. And unlike, and just like the others before, this sign has multiple layers in what it communicates. Now, you may have already seen the parallels between the Exodus and what happens here. Jesus strategically goes across to the other side of the lake and by doing so, he's actually taking his disciples and the crowd out of Israel and into what was technically... Gentile territory, the other side of the Jordan River. As they sit on the mountainside then, they'd be looking across the lake to see the land of Israel on the other side. The widest part of the lake is about the same distance as Cape Jarvis to Kangaroo Island. If you stand at Cape Jarvis, you can look across and see Kangaroo Island there, enough to see bit of the detail but too far to swim and uh, risky to sail. So, how are we going to get across? How are we going to get back to the land? Uh, Luke tells us that uh, it was near Bethsaida, which as you can see up near the, the north of the lake. Matthew and Mark call it a desolate place or a wilderness and it's in this desolate place then that Jesus feeds a crowd of people with bread. Then at night, his disciples leave by boat to go back to the Israel side of the lake. Now, the other Gospels tell us it was because Jesus actually instructed them to go ahead without him, to leave him behind. Now, it wasn't unheard of to go out on the lake at night, but it was unusual. It wasn't the safest time to go out in a boat, especially uh, when a storm was brewing. And there can be some pretty strong, fierce storms that uh, go across the Lake of Galilee as the cool air descends down across the lake. So they would have wondered, as they were battling in the middle of the lake, whether they'd make it across alive. Then Jesus comes to them, showing control over the sea by walking on the water. Now, John makes no mention of what's in the other Gospels. Um, this is the time when Jesus called Peter to step out of the boat and to walk to him, uh, or that the storm, the storm went calm the moment Jesus got into the boat, as he told the the waves to stop, but see the point that John emphasises the successful crossing. Once Jesus is in the boat, the boat was at the land to which they were going. See how Jesus has taken his disciples through a quick reenactment of Israel's escape from Egypt. He's actually brought together both ends of the story. As they were coming out of Egypt, they ate bread then they crossed the sea to safety and then as they were at the end of the 40 years after eating bread in the wilderness they crossed another barrier of water the jordan river and they entered safely into the promised land he's reenacted this story just in a in a day or so and along the way he's highlighted certain things that would have both made them recall the exodus story but also see something about who Jesus is. Like I said, there's technically more than one miracle that takes place here, the feeding of the 5,000, the uh, walking on water, the crossing of the lake. Together they form one sign. Part one is aimed at the crowds and part two and three is aimed at the disciples themselves. And between the two is this confession then of the crowds. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they don't say this is the Christ, they're remembering the promise given to through Moses to Israel before they enter the promised land. let's remind ourselves of that promise, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen He's speaking of Joshua, Joshua who came after Moses, who led Israel into the land. But we have no record of Joshua ever giving prophecies or of teaching the Word of God like Moses did. So the people had to still look forward, waiting for someone to properly fit that bill. Nearly 2,000 years later, they're still waiting for someone who will not only be... Like Moses, in that he does the same kinds of miracles as Moses, but also that he'll be a prophet in the true sense of speaking the word of the Lord, as Moses did. So, in one sense, the the crowd got it right. They saw the miracle of bread provided in the wilderness, and they understood Jesus was clearly telling them through their full stomachs, finally. He is the prophet. But in another sense, they get it wrong. And their understanding of what should happen next completely misses the point of why Jesus had come, as we'll see shortly. Let's look at some of the details that John highlights to see these parallels more clearly between the Exodus and what Jesus is doing. Jesus asked Philip, Where are we going to get bread to feed the crowd? Now, Philip's a logical disciple to ask because Philip's from Bethsaida, just up the coast. He'd have an idea of where we could source large amounts of food locally. But Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. It's because he wants to test Philip and the other disciples who are no doubt listening in to this. It's a careful choice of words by John, this word test. It's usually used in the sense of a trial, going through pain or difficulty in order to learn a lesson by experience. It's the word that's used of Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness. It's the word that's used of believers facing persecution And it's also used in a negative sense of those who put the Lord to the test. Why does John then use this word? Well, it's because it's an allusion again to the Exodus story, specifically Exodus chapter 16. As the Israelites were travelling between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness... whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. See the parallels there. Moses had brought the congregation out into the wilderness and they were hungry, just like Jesus brought the crowd out to this wilderness and they were hungry, Israel accused Moses of doing it to try to kill them, but the Lord says, no, I have another purpose, to test them. And how will the test happen? It will happen through this miraculous provision of bread, enough to satisfy them, even with extra provided on the sixth day to cover the Sabbath. Now, Moses made it crystal clear what was going on. There, when he recalled this incident many years later, in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What should Israel have learnt through this time of testing, of being hungry and then being fed with bread from heaven? Well, they were to learn that physical bread isn't everything. It sustains our bodies to physical life but only the true bread from heaven, the word of God, will sustain our whole beings to eternal life. So did Philip pass the test? I believe he did. Being a local, he could have formed a plan to find enough bread for the crowd. He could have proved himself to be a good strategic thinker, worthy of looking after the logistics of hospitality in the Kingdom of God. Instead, he expresses the impossibility, humanly speaking, of feeding 5,000 people. A denarius was a whole day's wage, but not even 200 full day's wages would be enough to provide even a snack for each person. And then Andrew echoes Philip's sentiment in verse 8. All they could scrounge up was five loaves and two fish, nowhere near enough to feed 5,000. Now, they could on one hand be saying, Jesus, you're crazy if you think we're going to feed this crowd. Or on the other hand, could they be expressing that same kind of expectant faith shown by Jesus' mother at the wedding at Cana? She simply stated the problem and then trusted Jesus to do what was needed. I think it's the second. Implied in their statements is this expectation. Jesus needs to do something miraculous if the day is going to be saved. That's why I say they passed the test. That's what the Israelites should have seen in the wilderness. Instead of complaining and questioning God's character and promises, they should have Come humbly to him with their need and trusted him to do what was needed, knowing that whatever he did, even if they continued to go hungry, they wouldn't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from his mouth. Now, I don't think I need to go into detail on the lesson that's there for us, do I? We just need to hear Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he calls us not to be anxious about what we eat or drink or wear but to trust our Father in heaven. He knows our needs even before we ask, even before we know what our needs are. But this is only the first part of the test. Remember why God tested Israel? we saw in Deuteronomy 8, it was whether you would keep his commandments or not. It's one thing to say that we trust our Father to provide our needs. It's another thing to demonstrate that trust trust by stepping out in obedience to his word. When he sent Israel manna from heaven, they were only to collect enough for the day and they were to collect none on the Sabbath. So would they obey his command, even if they felt tempted to gather extra, to hedge their bets, just in case God didn't provide enough for the next day? Can you see how this is where that line in the Lord's Prayer comes from? Give us this day our daily bread. It's saying to our Father give us no more and no less than what we need for today and we'll trust that tomorrow you'll do the same. And if it's in your good and loving decree that tomorrow we don't have bread, well, we'll accept that from your hand just as much as the days that you give us an overabundance. Of course, the world tells us something very different. It says, work hard, even to the point of exhaustion so that you can make sure that you are not only providing for yourself what you want and need each day, but so you can actually have much more than you need, so you can secure your future. Because in the end, saying that you trust God for everything kind of sounds like pie in the sky, doesn't it? The question we must ask ourselves regularly is, is my life demonstrating trust in the Father, gratefulness to Him by sending everything that I have as a gift from Him to be used for His glory? Or is my life demonstrating trust in myself, holding on to everything I have tightly so it can be reserved for my own welfare and my own good? Well, for Jesus' disciples, their trust was demonstrated in obedience to his instructions, have the people sit down and gather up the leftover fragments. Both instructions required faith in Jesus, that he was going to do something miraculous, as miraculous as providing manna from heaven. So, part two of the test, the disciples also passed, but they weren't proving how good they were at obeying They were proving Jesus' trustworthiness. When we obey Jesus' commands, we don't show our worthiness, but His. We demonstrate that His commands are good and life-giving, worthy of full obedience. Obedience that springs from faith gives glory to God, not to us. As Jesus said, didn't He? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, not to you. Next, John tells us there was much grass in this place. Feels a bit like some trivial information, doesn't it? People don't need grass in order to sit down, although it does make it a bit more comfortable. Mark's Gospel actually tells us a little bit more detail It says in Mark 6, He commanded them all to sit down on the green grass. The banks of the lake are very fertile and at this time, spring, would have been very green. But the mention of green grass is alluding to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He gives me everything I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. See this crowd is lost like a sh- like sheep without a shepherd and Jesus now comes to them as the good shepherd caring providing for their needs. He probably picked this spot because there was grass there to make this point. Nothing Jesus did was by accident. He did, he never saw something randomly just by chance. And decided at the last moment, moment, here's a convenient teaching point. It's all planned, it's all designed to bit by bit reveal more and more of His glory. Then we're told that the disciples gather up the leftovers and they fill 12 baskets, one for each of them, symbolising the 12 tribes that were provided for in the wilderness in abundance but also symbolising this new Israel. He was now forming with his 12 disciples as the foundation, a new Israel that he would continue to shepherd and provide for. It's us. He continues to be the good shepherd to us. So in this sign, both the provision of bread and then the crossing of the sea... It shows us that Jesus is the new, the better Moses, the reality that Moses was just a type and a shadow of. He truly is the prophet like Moses that the people were waiting for. And it shows us that Jesus is the good shepherd and that's something that Jesus will flesh out a bit later in John chapter 10. But that's just on this first level, the physical level of signs and wonders. As I said earlier, the people got this level, he's the prophet like Moses, but they hadn't yet seen to the deeper level, which is why they responded the way that they did and why Jesus responded the way that he did. See, the crowd thought, if he is the prophet to come and they knew that that prophet to come is the Christ... They thought, well, the next step, clearly, is now for us to head south and go to Jerusalem and install him as our king. Picture the volatility of this scenario. There are 5,000 men, enough to form a significant army. And so, led by their general, Jesus, whose supernatural power can feed them and provide for them, they can... A march south, they can rally more members and grow in size as they head south. They can make a significant assault on the Roman strongholds. They can throw the Romans out, recapture Jerusalem and restore the kingdom to Israel again. But Jesus knows that it must not happen this way. His pathway to kingship isn't military or political power, but the humility and the weakness of the cross. See, he's not only the prophet who is to come, he's also the suffering servant who will lay down his life for the transgressions of his wayward sheep. He will eventually come to Israel, to Jerusalem as her king, but not leading an army with swords. He'll come humbly on a donkey and he'll come to hand himself over to the Jewish and Roman authorities. He'll establish the kingdom of God not by military might but by giving his life as a ransom for many. Because what point is there in having a kingdom and a king but no citizens? Unless Jesus goes to the cross and bears our sin there will be no one worthy to enter the kingdom and live in it. The kingdom will be empty. So unless Jesus deals with sin and brings forgiveness to sinners, then everyone will be excluded from this kingdom. So just as Jesus was strategic in bringing the crowds to this place, he's also strategic in disappearing up into the hills and hiding there until nightfall when he could sneak down and go and meet his disciples in the middle of the lake. But what we'll see when we study the rest of this chapter at Friday Feed is that the next day the crowds are still following him. They've worked out where he's gone and they've also crossed to find him. They work out he's in Capernaum. It seems like their zeal for making him their king has abated and then we see Jesus doing something that to us might feel counterintuitive. Instead of gathering the crowd and making it bigger by saying things that attract them and draw them in, he actually drives most of them away by giving a word that's too hard for many of them to accept. He shows, once again, that their faith in him is a superficial faith. It's based on the signs that he's doing but not on he himself. So, he'll tell them that he isn't just merely, on that first level, the one who can miraculously provide bread, but that he is the true bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, not only did Moses prefigure him as the prophet, but the manna itself prefigured him as the one who comes down from heaven to give not just physical life but eternal life. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we shouldn't just be thinking about having full stomachs. We should also be thinking about having full souls filled with the life and the grace that can only come as Jesus is present with us every day. But if that wasn't offensive enough... He then talks about consuming flesh and blood. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Feeding on Jesus as the bread from heaven means In a sense, as the saying goes, we are what we eat. Not that we become little Jesuses, but our mortal life is taken over by his eternal life. He becomes intrinsic to who and what we are. We are in him. He is in us, as if his blood was actually flowing in our veins to give us life, as if our bodies Are actually his body doing his work and bringing glory to his father and our father. Well, this teaching achieved what he wanted. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So from this point, the number of Jesus' followers steadily decreased until at the end, it's just the 12 with him on the night before his death and even then, one betrays him. The rest flee and abandon him And he's left as one solitary man, ready to go to the cross as the Lamb of God, laying down his life to take away the sins of the world. None of us, if we can help it, would miss out on eating each day, would we? Because we know that food and drink is vital to our health and our life. Well, do we see Jesus and his word as vital to our life, both physically and spiritually? I fear that so often we forget that which Peter saw so clearly here. If we go elsewhere, if we try to find our sustenance anywhere else, we'll never find the food that will give us eternal life.